0: Your Bibles, too. Second Timothy, chapter one. That's where we're going to be this morning. I was told once that uh, God often gives preachers a message that they have to go through repeatedly, and uh, this portion of Scripture here, First Timothy, Second Timothy, chapter one, is one that I think this is the third or fourth time that I'm going to be preaching through. But uh, if you're anything like me, you don't remember what I spoke on last week anyway, so this will be new to you. No problemo. Um, I was really drawn to get back to this passage. It's been an interesting week, if anybody's been reading the news. If you're fasting the news this week, good on you. You didn't actually miss anything worth seeing, but uh, it's been an interesting week. Um, in, in the world, and as I kind of watch this stuff, and I try to keep informed of recent events, um, I just feel this deep conviction that it's so important for Christians to know that we are different, and we are different creatures. Scripture says we are, we are the new creation, and our response to situations in the world is different. Our hope is that because the Son of God died and rose again and sent the Holy Spirit into the world, anything and everything can change. That's our hope. The Lordship of Jesus Christ is our gospel. Our good news is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so I want to go through this passage, which touches many parts of the Christian life, but it's an encouragement from a spiritual father to a spiritual son as he's about to face the hardest time in his life, and it's just full of awesome power and grit for walking through tough times. So I want to read this to you, and uh, we'll go from there. So this is 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to start right at the beginning, and then we'll go through till the end of verse 10. This is the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my beloved child. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God, whom I serve as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control." and immortality to light through the gospel. Father, I thank you for these words. Father, these words that are inspired by your spirit and trustworthy and true, and long after Robert Balfour is, has received a face full of dirt in the ground and is eaten by worms, your word will be enduring, moving around the world, giving new birth to people, sustaining your church, transforming minds and nations, Father, your word is so good and powerful. And Father, I I must confess, it is pleasant to my soul. And so Father, I pray that you'd give everything to me that I need to be your true servant for the next however long it takes. And, Father, that you would be brooding and moving over Calvary Chapel, that you'd be doing eternal things, Lord Jesus. You'd be touching hearts and minds in ways where we need it so desperately, even if it's in ways that we never know we need it. Lord, would the truth pierce hard hearts, would the love of God soften um, fearful hearts? And would we be drawn together to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that this is the true word of God in your mighty name, Father, and for the sake of your Son's glory? Amen. This this I, I just this passage of scripture is really good. And one of the things that I'm really drawn to about Second Timothy is that it is just a book that is so serious. Um, the situation is the Apostle Paul, who was, if you remember, confronted by Jesus on the road to to Damascus and kind of made an apostle, not totally according to his will. He was having a good time persecuting Christians and casting votes that they would be put to death. And Jesus just showed up and said, you've got it all wrong and you're going to serve me now and your reward for all that you've been doing is that I'm going to send you to the Gentiles to suffer for for my name amongst them. Well, for years and years he serves Jesus and this letter is come at the end of his life. Um, during his travels, he meets a young man named Timothy, whose father is, I believe, if my memory serves me as a Roman, he might have been a Greek, but he's not a Jew. And, but his mother is a Jewess, and so he's kind of like a mix. And he picks up Timothy, and Timothy is his um, ministry partner, and they form this father-son relationship. And you heard it when I was reading it, that Paul addresses Timothy as his, as his beloved child. Okay, so there's this affection here. They've been working together and Timothy has a true heart to serve Jesus. And, and so there's, there's this letter is this kind of intimate letter from father to son. But well, Paul is about to die. Uh, he's been arrested. We know from the end of the letter he says, at my first de- defense, everybody abandoned me. And so... I'm not sure exactly who he was talking to. He could have been talking to some sort of court, but he could have actually been talking to Caesar and defending the gospel of Christ to the highest courts in the Roman world. And he says, when I was there, I looked around and there was not one other Christian in the room. Everybody ran away. Ah. Um, And... So Paul is at the end of his life. He's defending the faith to people who have the power of life and death over him, and he has zero expectations to come out of this thing alive. If you remember in the book of Philippians, Paul's in prison as well, and he says, you know, I could get free or I could get killed. I don't know what to choose. It would be great to go and see Jesus right away, but... um, there's some more work to do and so i expect to be set free and so he's assuming that he's going to be freed from prison and go about his ministry again and there is no no sense of this in this letter at all this is paul's last writings on earth that we know of and so it's just it's so weighty it's got so much gravity it's it's his last written communication that we have and so there's no fluff. Paul doesn't usually have fluff. He 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 doesn't he never you know addresses problems with a marshmallow shooter. We bought somebody a marshmallow gun for Christmas, and that's pretty fun. But he, Paul is not a marshmallow shooter in general. But this letter is just so 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 um, serious and weighty and glorious and good because of the circumstances that are they're being written out of. And so Paul's wanting to encourage Timothy because Timothy is about to watch, I don't know physically, but I, I think Timothy is about to go visit Paul. And so I don't know if Timothy would have seen it with his own eyes, but he's, he's about to go through the experience of having Paul condemned and have his head cut off. Okay. And so, um, even if your spiritual dad or your father dies of natural causes, That's traumatic, that's painful, that's life-altering. But if your dad is publicly beheaded beheaded as a criminal against the Roman Empire, um, that adds adds extra weights of earth-shatteringness to that event, possibly. And so Paul is trying to encourage Timothy to stay faithful to Jesus in the midst of huge reasons to just want to run away and hide. Maybe you can empathize. He's going to have reasons to want to run away and hide. His mentor, his spiritual dad, is about to be executed by the ruler of the world. And so I just want to poke out, a, or draw out a few things here. Paul starts off this as in, his encouragement by affirming to Timothy that he has a sincere faith. Um, in Greek, if I have mercy on my pronunciation, but it's an hupakritos. It's unhypocritical. It's the opposite of having hypocritical faith. It's sincere. It's genuine. And it just struck me as I was meditating on the scripture that there are different kinds of faith. Not every kind of faith is a sincere faith. Um, Sometimes people have really immature faith or young faith. You may have seen this sometimes. Somebody comes to the Lord and they're full of excitement and they're at every meeting and everything's wonderful. And then two weeks after they're baptized, they're gone. And you never see them again. And so people who have been around the church for a while, they can sometimes kind of look at a new believer and say, wow, they're really sending off the fireworks now. I wonder how this is going to turn out. Because there is such a thing as really young faith that's untested and you don't know what's going to happen yet. right, I think when I started showing relational interest in my wife, some of the people's concern was, he hasn't been a Christian that long. I think it had only been like less than two years. So it's like, we don't really know. Does this guy have tested faith? Does he have sincere faith? That was one of the concerns about me. And now that I have two daughters, I think that was a very good question to ask. I'm not offended at all. That was the right question. And I hope that they prayed that uh, my faith would have been proven sincere before the finger went through the ring there is um there's broken faith okay there's there are people who had a long time of believing in jesus and kind of going to church and this was their worldview and this was their life and then something happens and their faith is rocked and they walk away and in one sense, in their heart of hearts, they really know that God is real and that Jesus is Lord. But because of a bitterness or a woundedness, they're just not walking the walk. Their faith got broken, and they, they need to come back to the Lord. And so Paul's saying, you don't have a broken faith. You have a sincere faith. Uh, there's an insincere faith. Okay? There are people who come to church or come to Jesus, but they don't actually come to Jesus. There are reasons to join a church besides sincere faith in Jesus. Sometimes people join for friendship. Sometimes people join because there's lots of... Say they they want to start a business and there's other business people here. And so, hey, if you want to make those contacts, you come to church. I, I wish... Sometimes people just are drawn towards power structures and authority structures and if they can't you know make it in the business world they come to church and try to become an elder or a deacon or something like that and they're just like bossing people around and feeling right and the bible gives you a real opportunity to tell people they're wrong you know what i mean like even if you don't apply it to yourself you can at least go around telling other people that they're messing up and uh, there's there can be a draw to that and that is an insincere face and i'm not making this up this is all stuff that the bible talks about warning the church there are going to be people in your church that aren't following jesus they don't have a sincere faith they're here for other reasons and don't make them the pastor i wish that never happened so there's there's kinds of faith all right there are kinds of faith and paul is saying to timothy timothy you have a sincere faith i've walked with you i've journeyed with you you've been tested you've been gone through the ringer you've watched me get attacked publicly and you didn't run away you've been faithful and so he's encouraging Timothy by starting there. You have a sincere faith. As your spiritual dad, I look at you and I don't think, hmm, I think you're on the right track. All right? And so the question is always comes back to us is, what kind of faith do we have? Are we recovering from a broken faith? Are we still in an immature faith that is, is just waiting for the next thing to come and distract us and we're going to run off like a dog chasing a laser pointer just after whatever comes next to do we have a sincere faith and so part of what paul is doing in this letter is he's giving timothy power to keep the sincerity of his faith in the face of trial and struggle and so what he says to timothy is this for this reason this is verse six for this reason i remind you to fan into flame the gift of god Which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So he remembers the time when they were praying for Timothy and the Holy Spirit was making clear that Timothy was getting called into ministry or something and they laid hands on him and the Spirit visibly filled Timothy afresh with power and grace and anointing. So the Spirit is in you through the laying on of my hands. And he says, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So... So Paul is saying to Timothy, because I know your faith is sincere, because I look at you and I'm not like, "Mm," I'm like, yay, I'm reminding you to fan into flame the gift of God that's in you, and that is the Holy Spirit. So if you're a sincere Christian, you're sitting there going, I'm, I'm a real deal, I'm the sincere Christian here, I don't know about Rob, I don't know about anybody else, but I know I'm for real, then the scripture says, then you need to fan into flame the Holy Spirit in you. Okay, so we don't say I'm a real Christian, I don't need to fan into the flame the Holy Spirit. We hear the scripture saying, If I am a real Christian, so I need to make the fire of the Holy Spirit greater in my life. And he's and Paul's confronting Timothy because he says, Timothy, in the face of all the challenges that you have, in the face of a face of a real weird world, in the face of people who are gonna not like you because of Jesus, you have two options. Do you want to know what the two options are? He says, you have two options. You can either be controlled by a spirit of fear or by the Holy Spirit. Those are your two options, Timothy. And he's addressing somebody. He says, I know you're a real Christian. Real Christians have two options. You can either be controlled by a spirit of fear or you can be filled by the flame of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's saying here. And so I look at Timothy, knowing that he's a greater man than I am. He was, at that time, a greater man than I am. And I go, I really must need to fan the flame of the Holy Spirit in my life. Because Paul's saying to a tested evangelist, missionary, attacked by people and surviving the oppression, if, he, that, if that's true for Timothy, how much more is it true for me? And that word that Paul says, where he says, you haven't been given a spirit of fear, isn't the regular word for fear, phobos, which can sometimes be a good thing, where... The scripture might say, you know, fear the king or fear God. That's a good thing. It's a respect and a a trembling before them. It's um, the, the word for cowardice. Okay, so you can either be a coward, Timothy, or you can have the Holy Spirit. Notice he doesn't say you can either be a hero or you can be a coward. He says you can either be a coward or you can be filled with the Spirit. These are your options in life. Oh, that's interesting to me. Now, some of you may feel picked on in a second here, don't. okay? Often, when I talk to people about being filled with the Spirit, or I give messages on the Spirit, the response from people is, filled with the Spirit, what, what does that look like? What is this going to mean? Give me, what's, what am I signing up for here? Not that I am signing up, but what would it entail if I am signing up? And we want to kind of respond to the call to be filled with the Spirit, like if you're about to... Um, Sign papers to buy a house. It's like, I'm really going to go through the fine print here because I want to make sure that the garage door remotes stay in the house and that nobody, you know, I want to make sure that the drapes are still there when I get there. So we're going to go through all the fine, we're going to go through all the fine tooth, the fine print with the fine tooth comb. And I just want to encourage you that if that is your response, what am I signing up for here? What you have done is you have um, volunteered yourself for an in-depth Bible study in the New Testament. Amen? Because this is the fine print here. Matthew chapter 1 to the end of Revelation. That's the fine print on what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But, if if we say, um, what's this look like? What's this sign up for? I'm not really sure about this. Um, And we back off from the call to be filled with the Spirit. That isn't being filled with the Spirit. That's the Spirit of cowardice. Yeah. Those are only two options. I'm, I'm sorry. I know it's past lunch and you're you're fasting but those are the only two options is to welcome the call to be filled with the spirit in order to have the power and love and self-control of god or there's something else controlling us and paul tells timothy that it's not a good thing so um, instead sometimes you know we get really excited about possibilities and we dive into it without actually demanding to know all the details has anybody here ever bought something from ikea that's big you take it home you you rip open the box and you start assembling Am I right? You're like, I want that schboinga, or whatever it's called. I want that schboinga assembled now, that horp I paid 50 bucks for my horp nap, and I want that thing put together so I can sit on it while I'm eating my Swedish meatballs. Like, you know, you're excited to get your Finkeldazzle dazzle back together. I don't know why they can't put English names on these things, but whatever. It's, it's, it's kind of sophisticated. So you want to get that thing together, and so you start, you start working on it, and then when you have a problem, then when you open up the instructions, right? And you're like, oh, I wasn't supposed to put the thing dozzle on the hymn whopper. And uh, you have to undo it. And it's like, you can do that with the Spirit. You can just say yes and, and say, come on, Spirit, and you can go for it. And the Spirit can adjust as you go. You're allowed to be excited about being filled with the Holy Spirit. You're allowed to unpack the life of walking in the Spirit. And you're allowed to say yes and figure it out as you go. The Holy Spirit is a wonderful teacher and he's super gracious and he knows how to adjust along the way. But um, you can't, yeah, so I'm going to go from there. I'm going to lose you on Horpnap. (laughs) Some of you are going to be like Googling that. Is that a real name? It's not. I don't know anything about Swedish. Let me ask you this before I go on to the next section though. Do you have too much of the power of God in your life right now? Do you have too much of the love of God in your life right now? Either your experience of his love or his love overflowing in your life. Did you come in here going, I hope he doesn't preach on self-control because I'm all full up. I got so much self-control. I never do anything I don't want to do. And I always do everything I want to do. I wake up in the morning and I think... Okay, this is my worst one. Go, this week I went to bed early, like 10, and I thought, I'm going to wake up early tomorrow. And then my wife woke me up at 8.15. So like, if you do the math on that, there is no way that that was early. So that's not me. Why wouldn't we be excited about a spirit who whose job is power and love and self-control? Why wouldn't we, we just say, if, if I do the math, I need all those things a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. So how do I fan the flames? How do I increase the experience of this? Even mature Christians need to diligently increase their experience of the Holy Spirit of God and its fruit of power and love and self-control. So sometimes we need to get our hunger working for us, right? I, I, Spirit, I don't know what you're going to do, but I do need some power. Okay, Spirit, I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm tired of not experiencing the love of God. Holy Spirit, I don't know what you're going to do, but I really, 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 really need you to have supernatural self-control coming into my life. Amen? Okay, so let's keep going. So, Timothy's got a sincere faith, and we're called to have a sincere faith. Timothy is commanded to pursue more of the Holy Spirit, And we're called to do the same. And then the Apostle Paul gives Timothy uh, material to put onto the fire of the Holy Spirit to help increase the flamage, okay? If you have a natural gas fire at home, you know that there's a, a little knobby underneath that you hope the kids never discover that can make the fire go up and it can make the fire go down. You can make the fire go up, and you can make the fire go down. But when you're outside, and you're having a bonfire, if you want the fire to get bigger, you have to do what? You put more wood on it. See? Thank you, my friend, my good friend. You've got to put something on the fire. It needs material. And what Paul does here for Timothy is he gives him fuel to burn, which is truth about God. Okay? the fuel for Timothy's fire to burn is truth about God. And as Timothy believes these truths, it is fuel for the Holy Spirit to increase its presence and his power in his life. We live a life of faith. And so what Paul does is he... Gets a little bit more specific about Timothy's challenge in this life. He's a good dad. He thinks about his son's character and his challenges. He knows his strengths. He knows his weaknesses. And so when he addresses in verse 8 Timothy's um, challenge here, this is a I think a tailor-made one. This is one where he says, Timothy, this is going to be your fight. And he says, Therefore do not be ashamed. Of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So this is the fight. Timothy doesn't want to uh, naturally he does not want to experience shame, he doesn't like mobs of people telling him he's an idiot and so his tendency is going to be to try to avoid that suffering, but if he does that he's going to be abandoning the gospel of Christ. okay Anybody here like feeling shame? Anybody? And, and Hello? Nobody? And, nobody? There, there goes my small business idea. Shames are us. We will tailor-made insults to you and put them on Facebook. We will reduce your friendship count down to zero, I guarantee. We, nobody likes feeling ashamed. Shame is like a public display of weakness or foolishness Um, shame is when your failures are on display and attempted shamings try to do that thing too and it's very interesting that paul when he writes the gospel of romans he says i'm not ashamed of the gospel the greatest resistance to the spread of the gospel is people shaming christians you're an idiot this is stupid you believe the bible's true with all that stuff it says in there? You believe this verse is true, that verse is true? What's wrong with you? It's like 2,000 years old. Are you a dummy? Are you a hater? Are you stupid? I'm sorry, I just can't sit with somebody who thinks what you think. I can't work with someone like you. It's, it's, It's all shaming. And Paul is about to be publicly shamed as a criminal of Rome and have his head cut off And Timothy is going to be vulnerable to this. Not everybody's worried about shame. There are some personality types that really don't care what you think. You may have met them and you probably didn't like them because we all like other people to care what we think, right? That's the important thing. I really like that guy. He listened to me. He didn't do what I told him not to do and he did everything I told him to do. He was like putting my hands. We really care about what other people think about us and we care that other people care what we think about them. And so sometimes Christians can annoy people because we would rather just listen to what God says. And it's like, yeah, okay, you have an opinion, but it's really different than God's. And so I'm, bless you, but I'm I'm going with the book. And that can really bug people. But there's this pressure. There's this pressure of shame, and there's this fear of shame. And this is Timothy's, this is going to be Timothy's trial. And so the call is to embrace suffering, okay? Okay embracing suffering. This is the call. Christian, if you're a Christian, you're going to have to embrace suffering. You're going to have to embrace suffering of one kind or another. If you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to have a sincere faith, you're going to have to embrace suffering. And if you're going to be filled with the Spirit, you're going to have to embrace suffering. You're not one of those charismatic Christians, are you? You don't speak in tongues, do you? Oh my goodness. Your church doesn't, Your pastor doesn't move his arms when he's talking at the front, does he? I get made fun of for this one. <laughs> I don't know if it's like a breaststroke or a double karate chop to the devil's necks beside me. I don't know what it is, but it's definitely the Lord. That's going to be the pressure. And we're going to, have to, we're going to have to embrace suffering to be sincere Christians. We're going to have to embrace suffering to be spirit-filled Christians. And Timothy's going to have to embrace suffering. And one of the trials is that as Canadians, we hate suffering. Okay, we hate it. That's why we go around telling everybody free healthcare, hoo, 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 hoo. free healthcare, hoo, hoo. number one country in the world. Because I can drive to a doctor and then drive to a pharmacist, and for like 20 bucks, all my pain is gone. Or I can walk into an emergency room and just be like, hook it up. <laughs> I passed a kidney stone, and they gave me the which is like. More painful than childbirth. And uh, not that I've said that. There was a nurse, there, was a, no, there, was a nurse who, there who said, I've had kids and I've had a kidney stone and the kidney stone is worse. And my kidney stone was as big as it's allowed to get before they sonic blast you to reduce it to rubble. It was like I had 0.1 millimeter of space in my little tubey down here. And so it hurt bad. And they stuck this stuff in me which was so strong that they could have put a needle into my leg and into my bone, and I would have just barely woken up to ask them what they were doing. We just, we hate suffering. We hate social suffering. We hate relational suffering. We hate physical suffering. We hate it. We hate it. It's like the greatest evil that you can do anybody is to hurt their feelings or make them feel bad because that's suffering. And we hate it. We hate it. We hate it. And we sometimes want to define Christianity as as never hurting anybody's feelings, right? I'm a Christian. I'm so nice. I was joking around the other week about how in Canada you can drive your grocery cart into somebody and they'll apologize to you. Did anybody try that out? <laughs> I, I accidentally tried this out at Costco that week. I was putting on a jacket and Jackie, I was taking it off and I punched this guy who was behind me. I was taking on my jacket and I went, pooh! And he goes, Sorry! I was like, dude, I punched you in the back. You're, you're standing there just looking through the fila sweatpants and somebody punches you in the back. I'm so sorry my back was here. Like, you know, when you were punching the air. This is us. This is us. We hate suffering. But the scripture says you actually need to learn to love it. You actually need to embrace it. You actually need to learn how to say yes to this. I was talking with somebody this week who's in this really hard situation, and and you know all kinds of emotions come out when you're in a hard situation, and it's super understandable. And I was just talking with him about um, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, do you remember before he was arrested to be crucified, he goes into the garden and he's praying to his Father. And he's all by himself. His disciples are off there praying or falling asleep. He's alone with the Father. And he's in so much anguish that his sweat is coming out of his, sorry, his blood is coming out of his pores as he sweats. He's in so much trial. He's sweating bullets, literally. And, um, And he says to his Father, Father, all things are possible for you. If you just let this cup pass by me so that I don't have to drink it. Paraphrasing. If you just let this trial go by, anything's possible for you. You can save the world any way you want. And I don't want to do this. But not my will be done, but your will be done. And this is one of the most holy moments in all of human history where the Son of God is praying to Father God and saying, I don't want to do this. There's nothing appealing about the cross to me except for your glory. And so I will submit to it. And it just dawned on me that there are many times where people get, just by life, we get called into a Gethsemane time. It's dark, it's painful, we're confused, we're hurting, we're bleeding. And we, can, we get to the point where we'll say to God, I don't want to do this. I don't like this, I don't want to do this. But we don't get to the point where we say, but not what I will, but your will be done. And because we won't say that, we never get out of the garden. We never get to go through the pain, but then experience the resurrection and then the exaltation. And so this is the question. If, if you're in the garden, can you bow down and say, not, ma, ma, not what I will be done, but what you will be done? That, that's, that's the issue. And this is Timothy's call. Timothy, you have shame and pain ahead of you. but There's nothing you can do about this. There's nothing, you can't stop it. You're going to die for Jesus, Timothy. You can't stop it. Can you get down and say, not what I want, but what you want, God? That's the question. And if you say yes, there's unlimited glory coming your way. And so, what Paul does is he gives Timothy nine logs to throw on the fire, nine truths for Timothy to meditate on and internalize that will make the fire of the Holy Spirit greater in his heart and in his life. Or another way to look at it is um, about driving piles into the ground. Um, There's a great big church in town that built a great big sanctuary recently. You've probably driven by it on your way to Mitchell. And as they were building... This thing, somebody's like, I never drive to Mitchell. Go ahead, right after church, check it out. As as they were building this huge sanctuary, they spent weeks, if not months, driving these humongous piles into the ground, like 30 feet long, 50 feet long, maybe longer, I'm not sure exactly, these huge steel posts into the dirt, and you will never see them again but they needed something secure to build on top of. Because if you just threw a gigantic structure on the land around here, which can be kind of marshy or kind of sandy and kind of movie, and then we have winters, which cause frost to do all kinds of things. You know, somebody paves a road, and then you have winter, and then all of a sudden you're on on the ocean. You're surfing down Hespler and, like, and it's like it was paved flat, but then the, the ground just moves and buckles and the, the ice and the moisture, and if you don't drive down deep, 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 your building goes shife like crazy. And I was talking to this one guy one time who had bought a house, and they had, I think, added a garage onto it, but when they dug down for the posts of the garage, they only went down a little bit with those little concrete posts, just enough so it looked like there were concrete posts there. But because they hadn't gone down all the way, the the frost actually was pushing the posts out of the ground so that the garage was all kershnippled and fang-dangled and whatever it is. It looked (laughs) bad. And that's faith. There are certain truths that need to be driven right into our souls, so deep that there is nothing that could push them out. And those are the truths that we need to build our faith walks on. And so here's nine of them courtesy of the apostle Paul. And we just we need to hear this. Paul is in one sense writing to save the life of his son. Okay, this is this is nothing. This is so holy ground. He's writing truth so that his son will follow in behind him into martyrdom and glory and not fail in his faith. This is so awesome. And so he says this. He says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Okay, can you imagine being associated with somebody who was doing a life sentence in Stonewall? If your dad was doing a life sentence, is that Stonewall? Was that the right place? Stony Mountain. You, t- typically, you aren't proud about that kind of stuff. But don't be ashamed of the, of the Lord, and don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Here's truth number one who saved us? Okay, so Timothy, remember, God has saved you. If you're a Christian, you have sincere faith, you are saved. It's done. It's not. He will save you. It's done. You're saved. He's died for your sins. He's raised from the grave. You're saved. You're saved. So Timothy, take this truth: I am saved by God, and drive it right down into the depths of your soul. You're saved. And it's like end of story, end of chapter, end of book, end of trilogy, end of chronicles. The author died. There won't be any (laughs) extensions. It's like you're in a movie. You know, we everybody goes to movies. If you go to movies, you watch the movie, and you're just waiting for the extra scenes, right? It's like. Every superhero movie, Samuel L. Jackson shows up again and it just lets you know what the next series is gonna be about and, you know. Whatever it is. So you're sitting there and you're waiting and the credits are going and then there's one and then the credits come again and you're like, maybe there's a second one. And you know, and, or whatever. And no, it's, there's, there's nothing else. You're saved. If you're in Jesus, He's done it. He has done it. He's died. There's no more dying to be done. He's done it and He's raised from the grave. And if He's alive, He's going to save you and He has saved you. So you're saved. We're supposed to take this truth and just say, look, God has saved me. Caesar, I'm saved. It's, it's over. I'm done. I'm saved. Start there. I'm saved in Jesus. I, I believe. Truth number two, and he's called us to a holy calling. Still verse 9. Everybody God saves, he calls to a holy calling. Okay, God doesn't rescue people just to put them behind glass on a shelf. If he saved you, he's called you. If you're a Christian and alive, you have a purpose. And so he's called us to a holy calling. And it's not just to run around and see how much stuff we can buy. It's not to see if, if we all get together and we can go to Dollarama, maybe we'll be able to buy out that entire store. And isn't it wonderful? All this stuff that'll be broken by Thursday. And, you know, our job we're not just just to here to buy stuff and make ourselves happy and have me we have a holy calling from God himself the God of the universe has come down and snatched us out of the fire and drawn us out of the floodwaters and said I have a mission for you and you know there's still a mission because you're still breathing So if you're here and you're a Christian, you have a holy calling on your life. You have a mission to bring glory to God and to serve Him and to not be sucked into sin and to not live in this shame of pornography for the rest of your life. It's a holy calling. It's to be like Jesus and to walk like Jesus and to serve God in this life. This is a huge honor. This is something to be excited about. There is no chief justice in America that can give you a more awesome task than to be a Christian. in case you watch the inauguration on Friday, the call to defend the Constitution of the United States, bless you if you're from south of the border, is nothing compared to being a servant of the gospel of God. It's nothing compared to being a servant of the word of God and to defend the truth of it by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a holy calling. So that's truth number two. Number one, He has saved us. I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved. Truth number two, He's given us a holy calling. I'm called, I'm called. Me, me, I'm called. There's a mission, there's a calling, there's a lifestyle. This is wonderful. Truth number three, it's not because of our works. He saved us and called us with a, to a holy calling, not because of our works. Hello? Hello? This is the challenge because when life goes wrong, typically we start looking around for what we did wrong, right? We start going, oh, there's lots of pain. Maybe God's abandoned me. I've I've done to do something wrong. Okay, God, I'll clean up my life. I'll stop drinking. I'll stop smoking. I'll start tithing. I'll start going every Sunday. I'll read my Bible. I'll and we start going on. I'll do. 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 And, and Paul just saying, Timothy, don't freak out when things get bad. You need to know that you weren't saved because of anything you do. So stop. Don't try to start making it about you now. Trust Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Obey Jesus. But don't make this about all you're going to do for God now because that's not even how things started. When we are saved, all we bring to it is stuff God needs to forgive us for. When it comes to the deal for getting saved, it's I bring my sin and Jesus brings his cross. And that's the whole whole gospel. You and I didn't do anything to get saved, and we won't do anything to earn being saved. It's not because of works. So trust Him. Trust Him. Persevere. Believe in Him. Don't panic. Don't give up. Don't falter. Don't fall down. God is faithful. It's not because of works, but because of His own purpose. That's point number four. He saved us. He called us. It's not because of works, point number four, but because of His own purpose. Why is Robert Belfour a Christian? Because God's working on something. Hello, what? Hey, but, but I prayed a prayer and yeah. But God has his had his own purpose for saving me. When He did, how He did. This is God's world. Okay, so this is what. Paul is, Paul is trying to get Timothy to not stare at himself, but to look at the God, God, how he really is. This is God's world, and God is working out a plan. A plan that he desired, a plan that he designed, a plan that he predestined, and he is unfolding it, he's executing it, he's accomplishing it, but God saved you, Timothy, because of his own purpose. And what Timothy is supposed to hear is, if God started this, God will finish this. Okay, This is not my idea. Like I could fail at it. This is God's idea. And he is going to accomplish his plans the way he wants to. And so my job is to surf his wave, not to try to summon up some typhoon to cause a wave in the first place, like anybody here could do this. There is n- nobody, no matter what you think about your body image, is big enough to jump into the ocean and cause a tidal wave to happen. Amen? And God can do it. He just shimmies some plates. Pl-plush. This is God's world, God's plan, God's purposes, and by grace he has called us into it, which is my next point. Point number five, that his, we're called and saved not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Okay? You've got to add that, because sometimes when people think, uh-oh, the purposes of God, they think this is going to end badly, because God is like a, the heavenly wood chipper. He just sucks everything into it and spits it out in little pieces in the back end. And so he says, his purposes are grace for you, Timothy. It's it's all grace. It's all grace. God looked at you, Timothy, and he says, "Ah, there's nothing really attractive about that guy, but I'm going to love him. I'm going to choose him. I'm going to bless him. I'm going to do good to him. I'm going to forget all his sins. I'm going to bless him in the name of Jesus. It's about his grace. Point number six, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This is one of those verses that sometimes you can wish were never written down in the Bible because they make your head hurt and life complicated. Um, Timothy, the grace that you have in Jesus, which you stand in, which you're depending in to persevere in your trials, God gave you that grace before the ages began. He's like, what? It makes your face want to do that. What? It makes my face want to do that. Like, when, If you think about it, it's like, how does that but with and the, but then i but then put my mom and dad and then before that yeah but I, was i even where was i how did you do that what, how do you receive something you're given something but i wasn't in there and with, with the, and i spent 18 years not liking you God. so how does it i didn't even uh, but now this is a truth that paul wants to hammer into Timothy's soul Timothy god has loved you forever Timothy, God has loved you forever. His attitude towards you has been grace since before Adam and Eve were formed. Only God can do that. Only God can will that, know that, work like that. But Christian, whatever you're going through, God has loved you since before you were formed. And if he's loved you since forever, what makes you think he's going to quit on you now? That's what he's saying to Timothy. Timothy, If God has loved you since forever, why would he quit on you now? You can go through anything. You can go through anything. He loved you when there wasn't even a you to love, when you were just a twinkle in your dad's eye and a dozen roses for your mom. Which has now been made manifest through the appearing of his son, Jesus Christ. So he's saying, even if all of God's purpose and grace towards you was hidden for a long time, now it's made clear through the appearing of Jesus. And so he's wanting to take it back to Jesus. Why can we go through anything? Because Jesus came back from the dead. Why can we suffer through anything? Because Jesus came back from the dead. Why do? I, how do I know that this is true? Because somebody was dead for a few days and now they're not. That's God saying, I'm going to be faithful to everyone who believes in him. You know, when you write a check, nowadays, if anybody still does that, it's not going to last forever. You might want to buy a checkbook and just put it under glass so you can tell your grandkids, this is worth money. And you write a check and you give it to someone and they pull out their smartphone and they take a picture of it and they deposit it into the bank using their camera. You know, there's 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 an in-between time where it's like, I don't know if this is going to clear. The bank has to go and figure out if there was money in that bank account in order to transfer it into this bank account, and usually they let it have you by grace. They let you have the money by grace, but then if it turns out there was no money in the bank account to start off with, which is all these Ponzi schemes, you know what? There are no princes in Nairobi who want you to help them move a million dollars into Canada. It's never going to happen. It's not. Gonna, it's not no. Just don't just block, delete, it's never going to happen. Anyhow, there's a moment it clears where it's like, yes, there's money in the account and now you're richer because of it. And the, the resurrection of Jesus is when all of God's promises cleared. Okay? Everything he promises to us, all of his promises are not as difficult as bringing back someone from the dead. And so when he brought Jesus back from the dead, he's like, and I'll do everything I promised to you as well. It's cleared. I've got money in the bank. I can handle every expense you're covered and this jesus who has appeared point eight and nine together abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel jesus has abolished death through his death and brought life and immortality to light through his resurrection from the dead One of the wrestlings that you do as a North American is that we we don't think about death very much, and we don't care about it that much until somebody dies, and it's always a surprise. What great Aunt Tilly, she died. She was only 104. You know, it's always a surprise when somebody dies because we just expect everything to get better and better and better and better and better every day, but we are we are going to die. And whatever we fought for or not fought for, had or not had, um, if, if there's no life after death, it's just, it's nothing. It really is nothing. Uh, if, if the sun is just going to one day go into the red, red death and just envelop the entire solar system in, in hot gas, what's the point? What's the point in telling your wife you love her? If you're just gonna die, or your husband, or your kids, I love you, kids, but someday I'm gonna die and you'll never see me again, and there's no hope, and so why bother? Look, whoa, yeah, whoa, 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 whoa! I mean, George, your tool, eat your broccoli. And so Jesus has come back from the dead to abolish death for you. You'll never actually die. You'll either have this life or you'll have the presence of Jesus, but you'll never actually know what death is like. And you'll have life forever with him. And these are nine truths for people facing the worst of circumstances so that they'll remain unshaken through it. Not untested, not untempted, but unshaken. Father, I just thank you so much for your word. Father, I thank you that of all the different books in the Bible, Lord, you chose to have this correspondence between Paul and Timothy put into Scripture. And Father, that you worked something in Paul by the Holy Spirit so that even though he was facing facing sure death, he could write something so powerful and encouraging that I could be encouraged by it 2,000 years later. Father, in one sense, this is a testimony of what the Holy Spirit can do in a soul that is filled with the power and the love and the self-control of God. That at the worst moment in someone's life, they can be overflowing with such grace that everybody around them is built up. Father, that is not natural, physically possible apart from you. So, Father, I pray that you would do the same thing in me and in each one of us, that you would help these truths go into our soul. Lord, we would do the work of putting them into our souls. We would meditate and pray and seek you. And by grace, you would drive them so deep into us that these truths would be things that we don't negotiate, we don't question, we know. Father, this would be a work of grace and a deep love for us. We just worship you. Amen.